0: Before we do that, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask you today that you would give us eyes to see Jesus clearly as your gospel message is read and preached. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 30. And they came to Bethsaida and said, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. In 1688, the philosopher William Molyneux proposed a question to John Locke, and it went like this. He said, uh, imagine there's a person blind from birth, and they, um, they're able to uh, hold and feel a sphere, a circle, and also a cube, and know the difference. And then imagine that they receive their sight... And the question is without actually touching the sphere and touching the cube, would they be able to identify the sphere and the cube? Now, that was a theoretical question that actually, those that are in epistemology, uh, they, they actually debated that for hundreds of years. In fact, it's still debated. Guys like Voltaire, Diderot, Thomas Reed, Adam Smith, Leibniz, a whole bunch. Uh, debated that. Um, and some said yes, and some said no. Um, now for uh, for Molyneux, that was probably not just a theoretical question. His wife was actually blind. Well, now because of modern science, we are beginning to get a picture. They thought for years that that was an unanswerable question, but it appears that we have an answer. In an August 2014 article in the New Yorker, It said this since 2003, Dr. uh, Pawan Sinha has organized and supervised site restoration surgeries for more than 200 blind children from some of the poorest regions in India. The surgeries were given to any child who medically qualified, some of whom had been blind since birth with cataracts. After sight had been restored, Sinha proposed Molyneux's question. In a typical example, a teenage boy, blind since birth because of opaque cataracts, sees for the first time. The boy sits still and blinks silently. Sina believes that these first moments from newly sighted, of the newly sighted are blurry, incoherent, and saturated by brightness, and swirls of colors that do not make sense as shapes or faces or any kind of object. Suna said, moments immediately following bandage removal are not quite as magical as Hollywood movies would have us believe. So then to answer Molyneux's question then, no, a cube and a sphere are both lost in this confusion. Stephen Kosslyn, a pioneer in the field of vision and mental imagery, goes on to say that many of the seemingly natural qualities in everyday vision are not innate, but are instead learned through experience. The brain can't possibly know that in advance advance of being born, he said. And so in these first moments of new sight, even with two good eyes, the incoming light will be mishandled by an unprepared brain. Well, since the surgeries that Sina did, he followed up with the Prakash uh, children and found that within a week to a few months after surgery, the children could match felt objects to their visual counterparts now that's interesting so the mystery has been revealed Uh, but how does that apply to our text today well it reminds me quite a bit of jesus and his two-stage healing here of this blind man Uh, very similar the man said i see people but they look like trees walking and then after the second time jesus applied hands to him Uh, He opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, this is interesting. This healing is unique in all of Jesus' healings in Scripture. There's no other two-stage healings. And uh, it's not as if Jesus couldn't have healed. There are some skeptics who say Jesus was not powerful enough. He sort of messed up on the first healing, didn't quite get it right. Um, and, And that's not true. We find that Jesus does healings in Scripture that... We would consider to be more, even more dramatic, like the raising of dead. Uh, I mentioned that last week, Mark 5, 41 and 42. He healed a, a girl, and he said, uh, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. He didn't heal her, and she became undead and a zombie for a while. And then he said something again, and then finally she was truly alive. That's not how it worked. So what's going on here? And I think that what we have in our text is something for you and for me, something that the disciples and the people of Jesus' day would not have understood because God, by his spirit, has revealed it to us and put this healing in context. What we find here is this is a, an image of how people oftentimes uh, perceive Jesus and see Jesus. It can happen in stages. There's a first stage healing. There's a first stage sight where people, as it were spiritually, see Jesus, but he's like trees walking. And then finally, they see Jesus clearly. Remember last week in our text, the disciples were blind. They were blind spiritually. Mark chapter 8, 27 and 28. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, uh, excuse me, uh, Mark 8, 18. Having eyes, do you not see? He said to his disciples, you have the apparatus, you have the eyes, but you don't see. You don't see me. You don't understand me. You're confused about me. You're blind. What we find is there is a, a partial sight In our text, in the next verses, Mark 8, 27 and 28. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Bingo. Peter, you got it. You got this one correct. You have eyes to see that Jesus is the Christ. Others thought they saw Jesus. They thought they perceived him. They had opinions about him. Some thought John the Baptist. John the Baptist was highly respected. Uh, He was a highly respected prophet in the day of Jesus. Others thought Elijah. Elijah was a prophet from the past in the Old Testament. He was wildly popular at this time. Not so much because of his great miracles that he did, but because... Uh, Elijah had the distinction of being ushered into heaven without dying. And so he was held in high esteem or some thought maybe one of, one of the prophets, you know, one of the other prophets. And in every case, uh, they thought of Jesus highly. Uh, they didn't think uh, they didn't think Jesus was a scoundrel, but they uh, vastly underestimated and misunderstood who Jesus was. So who do you say Jesus is? Maybe you say Jesus is a good man. Maybe he's a good teacher, a good example. You know, the Muslims call him a prophet. They respect him as a prophet. Throughout people, there are, throughout history, there are people that have called him a perfect man. There are, were people not long after uh, the church began after the time of Christ that said, well, Jesus is truly God, uh, but he's not really man. He just appears to be man. And so you have people that have opinions about Jesus that are partially true but undervalue uh, just who Jesus is as the Christ. It reminds me of the parable of the blind man and the elephant. You know that popular parable? The first blind man put out his hand and touched the side of the elephant. How smooth? An elephant is like a wall. The second blind man put out his hand and touched the trunk of the elephant. How round? An elephant is like a snake. The third blind man put out his hand and touched the tusk of the elephant. How sharp? An elephant is like a spear. The fourth blind man put out his hand and touched the leg of the elephant. How tall? An elephant is like a tree. The fifth blind man reached out his hand and touched the ear of the elephant. How wide? An elephant is like a fan. The sixth blind man put out his hand and touched the tail of the elephant. How thin? An elephant is like a rope. Now, the application of this story is a little different usually, but basically they had one problem. They were blind. They couldn't see the elephant. And so they misunderstood who the elephant was. But not Peter. Peter correctly called him the Christ. That could also be translated the Messiah, literally the anointed one. Now, in the Old Testament, this term Messiah actually was used very infrequently. And it was used in a broader way than we often think of Messiah. It simply meant anointed one. And the priests in the Old Testament were anointed. Uh, Kings were anointed, and, uh, and we find that by the time of Christ, this term Messiah had taken on connotations related to kingship, specifically King David, uh, specifically uh, the one king that was to come. We do see the term used in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. This is terminology related to a king. And so at the time of Christ, the, the idea of this king would come and all of the prophetic word about the transformation of Israel and the earth and how there would be peace and how there would be righteousness. And what it meant to them was that their oppressors uh, would be defeated and done away with. And there would be righteousness throughout the world. And this this Messiah, this anointed one. Would come and uh, be this person. And that was, this concept was current at the time of Christ. We see this, for instance, in John chapter 1, uh, verse 40 and 41. Andrew comes to his brother Simon Peter. He found his own brother Simon and said, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And then the account of the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that. Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then she went on to say, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They had expectations, but those expectations were wrong. And so Peter's vision at this point is still blurry. And yet his statement His declaration that Jesus is the Christ is the first example of real sight by the disciples in the book of Mark. And it it finds itself in the center of the book of Mark geographically and thematically. We find this declaration of Christ. And from that point forward, things change. Now, I'm not going to give away too much for next week's sermon. Uh, But I must, because where we go next is the definition of Messiah. So verses 31 and 32, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, right? So he gets that he's the Christ, and then he rebukes Jesus immediately after that. And so it's clear that Peter does not see Jesus clearly. Mark 8, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter had a different concept of Messiah. The Messiah was one that was going to come and save and help them. It was sort of a Jewish nationalism. You know, there's been much said about Christian nationalism in our day. It was a Jewish nationalism that the, the king would come and head the nation and uh, would bring about all this wonderful peace and harmony. And Jesus said, not so fast. Um, it's a different view of my messianic Goals, my messianic purpose in being here. Peter's idea was sort of like this, or somebody banging on your door, kind of a wild man banging on your door. You call the police and the police show up. You look out the window and you go, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. Or you have uh, maybe a mom in the grocery store and mom's with her kid and the kid's looking at the gummy bears and the mom goes over to the next aisle to look at the sardines and uh, the kid's freaking out. Mom is gone. And starts to whimper and cry. And mom rounds the corner. I'm so glad to see you, mom. You're here to save the day. I mean, that's what they thought. Jesus was going to do this. It's all going to be wonderful. He's going to save us. Well, Jesus begins to clear up Peter's vision. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You see, they would have thought that Jesus is going to usher in this kingdom. And who is going to be there with him? Why? His followers, his disciples. They're going to be with him, be part of his administration. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross. That is, you're going to have to look forward to the uh, emblem of Roman execution, not glory. If you're going to follow me. And it actually took the death and resurrection of Jesus for the disciples to see clearly and to have the stage two healing uh, that we see of the blind man. So the question is, do you see Jesus clearly? Will you follow him only so long as he gives you a comfortable life? If you suffer negative consequences like embarrassment or loss of finances or loss of social status for being associated with Jesus, will you deny you know him? You know, we've been saying during this whole series that this is about, the gospel is about, who is Jesus and what does that mean for me? It means that you have followed a suffering Messiah. Now, he's in heaven now in glory. And we look forward to the day when he'll return and there will be a transformation but now but now we endure suffering as our savior did but we want a suffering messiah we might not think we want a suffering messiah but that is exactly what we need we need a suffering messiah daniel chapter 26 goes on to say this about the anointed one after the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing The Bible says of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter, Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He suffered for transgression, for our transgression. Isaiah 53, 8 says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? He was struck down. He was cut off. He was crucified for the transgression of his people. Now, what does that say about you? What does that say about me? As we learn who Jesus is, what he came to do, you need a savior to save you from transgression. So I just want to read here some of Jesus' comments about the law. When we talk about transgression, we're talking about transgression against the law. And so Jesus described it in the Sermon on the Mountain. Here's some of what he said, starting with verse 21 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members, then your whole body go into hell. And it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Let that uh, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say don't resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, how many of those things resemble you? I'm not talking about in the good sense that you do. them. It cuts to the heart. We see our transgression. The late theologian R.C. Sproul has said this. I hear this from a lot of folks. They say to me, I just don't feel the need for Christ as if Christianity were something that were packaged and sold through Madison Avenue. That what we're trying to communicate to people is, here's something that's going to make you feel good, and everybody needs a little of this in their closet or in their refrigerator. As if we're some commodity that's going to add a dash of happiness to our lives. I think that many people in today's culture don't really believe that God is going to hold them accountable for their lives. They They think that God really does not require righteousness. When we take that view, we don't feel the weight of the threat of judgment. If you're not afraid to deal with God's punishment, then be happy as a clam if you want. I would be living in terrible fear and trembling at the prospect of falling into the hands of a holy God. You see, that's what it means to see Jesus clearly. Jesus came as your Messiah, as your Christ, as your anointed one. And he came because of transgression. He came to pay the penalty that you deserve. So number one, to see Jesus clearly means that you are liable to God's judgment. Secondly, Christ, your Messiah, has gone to the cross to pay that penalty for your sins. And thirdly, you must trust, trust that Christ is your Savior But he can save you from the penalty of your sins. The Bible says that by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. So we trust in Jesus, our substitute, our Messiah, to take the penalty that we deserved as he went to the cross. And so my question is, do you see clearly now? Do you see Jesus? A man by the name of Anthony Poloni came to see Jesus clearly. This was his story. He said, in my life, I've had my share of sins. I used to cut myself and think that I was not good enough to live. I used to think God hated me. Why would God allow certain things in my life if he really loved me? I obviously had a lot of questions about God. And while I was in college at the Citadel in South Carolina, I got involved in a campus ministry. And the ministry leaders offered help when I had questions. I learned more about Jesus at a retreat in North Carolina And during the retreat, I talked with a leader in the ministry, and the conversation bounced back and forth between my questions and his answers. I thought that Christians never sinned. I asked, how can I know if I'm forgiven and have eternal life? He said, by believing that you are a sinner and that Christ died for your sins and then accepting him as your savior. I thought that Christians never sinned. I also thought that my sin was keeping me from forgiveness. He explained that even Christians do sinful things, but that Jesus has the power to change lives. After that, I accepted that I was a sinner and that Christ died on the cross for my sins. I knew I was forgiven. See, he saw clearly Jesus, Jesus as the Christ. That's who he was. And so my question is for you simply this. Do you see Jesus clearly? Let's pray. Father, we do come to you and ask again, just as we did at the beginning of this reading and sermon, that you would give us eyes to clearly see Jesus, that we would see that he is the Christ and that we would know what that means, that he is the Christ, not just intellectually, but by faith we would come to experience him as our Messiah. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's continue to um, sing of our wonderful Savior. We're going to prepare for um, receiving of the Lord's Supper in just a minute, but let's stand and sing hallelujah, what a Savior.